Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing this morning? Everybody good? Okay, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me then to Ephesians chapter 5. And if you forgot your Bible, uh, you should find one down in one of the chair racks around you that you can use. And if you don't have one, let us know. We'll get you one. Um, <clears throat> uh, last week, we started a new series called Wild Goose, as Steve mentioned a little earlier. And it's, um, it's intended to be a theological overview of the Holy Spirit. And if you missed part one, I highly encourage you to go online and listen, uh, listen to it because it sets the foundation for everything that follows and really identifies uh, who it is we're talking about. Uh, as I mentioned last Sunday, uh, there are a number of metaphors in Scripture, Old and New Testament, used to depict uh, the Spirit, wind, fire, water, oil, and the most famous being that of a dove. But apparently the ancient Celtic Christians weren't all that familiar with doves, and so they adopted their own metaphor, and they referred to the spirit as onged glas, or the wild goose. And, um, and I chose to go with that metaphor because, at least for me, it, it uniquely portrays the strength, the power, the freedom, uh, the untamable unpredictability, as well as the um, amazing grace and majestic nature of God's spirit. And so... Uh, as we continue our study this morning, I want to look at something the Apostle Paul writes to Christians in the early church about the Holy Spirit, and it's a fairly well-known comment, which in my opinion is often misunderstood and misapplied, primarily because it tends to be kind of taken out of its uh, literary and cultural context. In other words, we read this statement, but we fail to recognize what Paul says immediately before it and what he says immediately after, and uh, as well as forgetting who specifically he is saying it to. So let me read the text for you. We'll talk a little bit about it. And just a side note here, I want you to notice as we read it <clears throat> how this is one, another one of those instances where all members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are represented together. Okay, Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 15, uh, Paul writes to Christians in the church, and he says this. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, uh, in case you haven't picked up on it yet, uh, the comment that I want us to consider, the one that gets the most attention in this particular text, is the one in which Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, he says, be filled with the Spirit. He doesn't say it'd be nice for you to get filled with the Spirit. He doesn't say it would be really helpful if you could go out and attain this filling of the Spirit. He just kind of blurts it out there. He says he commands it. And so uh, in response to this unusual command comes the debated question, what does Paul mean when he says this to fellow Christians? You know, based solely on what we learned last week about the Spirit, it's obvious that Paul cannot he cannot be commanding sort of empty Christians to acquire or be filled with something they don't already have. Besides, the Spirit is not a something, right? He is a someone, the divine personal being who indwells every single Christian. Jesus made this promise to his followers. We talked about it last week. He said, the Holy Spirit, he lives with you and will be in you. And it's not like we get bits and pieces of him. You know, we're not indwelt by a partial being. We get the whole person. 
And if that's the case, then what is, what is Paul talking about here? Well, it seems to me the best way to approach the question is to first recognize that Paul's command not to be drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit uh, is last in a series of commands, all of which have a common theme. Starting in verse 15, he says, Be careful how you live. And the Greek term for careful here carries the idea of being acutely aware, you know, cognitively aware of what's going on all around you. And then he says, live not as unwise, but wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Time is passing. He says, be wise. And by definition, wisdom is not just about uh, information or knowledge, but it's also about the practical, the practical application of that knowledge, of what we know to be true. And more specifically, biblical wisdom, the idea of wisdom in Scripture, refers to skillful spiritual living. It's the ability to both know and follow God's design for us as human beings, leading good, honest, healthy, helpful, satisfying lives, lives honoring to God and respected by others. Paul then goes on, he reinforces the idea when he says, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. In other words, he says, grasp what is true. And be discerning about what God says is right, good, healthy, and best for you. So what's the sequence? Be careful, be wise, understand. Here's my, here's my personal Ray K summary, all right? He says, have discernment, have wisdom, and have an acute cognitive awareness of reality, of what's happening all around you. And when summarized that way, it seems that Paul is calling Christians to a higher level of mental awareness, of rational functioning in life. But where does that come from? And that brings us to verse 18, where Paul reveals the answer. He says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, to be honest about it, when you first read this, it seems that the comment about drunkenness uh, is a bit random. You know, it just, it seems out of place. And why would Paul bring this up here and now in his letter? And if you think about it, the only logical reason is uh, either, either it had some connection to those to whom he was writing or some connection to what he has just said or is, is in some way connected to being filled with the Spirit. And here's the deal. It's, all, it's connected to all three. How? Well, first of all, keep in mind, Paul was writing this letter to Christians living in Ephesus, a city in in Asia Minor, very, uh, you know, well-known for its uh, pagan worship. Uh, one of the gods that was um, um, popularly worshipped in Ephesus was the god Dionysus, the Greek god of wine, or no, also known as the god, god of ecstasy. And here's a picture of his statue. Notice the grapes he, got, he has in his hair. It's quite a do, although I have nothing to say about hair. So, uh, but that's a, that's a picture of Dionysus, the deity, the Greek deity that people would worship. And according to historians both ancient and modern, uh, followers of Dionysus would worship the deity by, get this, they'd go out and they would get hammered drunk, just hammered, and then they'd go dancing in the streets, carrying phalluses, singing rude, crude, lewd songs uh, to each other, screaming obscenities with all of that culminating in public acts of sexual immorality and indecency. You see, the ancient cult of Dionysus taught that when a person got to the place of just total inebriation, you know, a loss of control, that then the deity would enter that person and give them wisdom and courage and joy and life after death. And my guess is they just got wicked hangovers and possibly some diseases, but that's me, you know, that's me. Uh, but this is what the majority of people in Ephesus were involved with. 
In fact, the worship of Dion- get the, the worship of Dionysus got so crazy and out of control and, and perverted that in the year 186 BC, the Roman Empire banned it, forbid it. Do you know how bad something has to be for the Romans to say it's no good? You can't do it? I mean, this was pretty, this was messed up stuff. And so what happened though is the banning of it simply pushed it underground. And by Paul's day in the first century, it had reemerged with a vengeance and Ephesus was a hot spot for it. Now, with that historical cultural backdrop in mind, think again about what Paul says to the Ephesians. Do not be drunk with wine, which, which leads to debauchery. And our English word debauchery means uninhibited, indecent, immoral behavior. And uh, based on what we know of Dionysus' worship, this makes sense, right? But what's fascinating to me is, is the Greek term that's actually used here, the one that Paul uses is, is, is the term asotia. Uh, a being a negative prefix attached to the word sotia, which means to save or to rescue. So the term literally means no saving, no rescuing. And therefore, an alternative and and an appropriate translation would be, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to no salvation, no saving, no rescuing. In other words, Paul is reminding Christians in Ephesus, many of whom who grew, grew up in that pagan culture, were immersed in it, were coming out of it as followers of Jesus. He says to them, don't forget, it's only the Holy Spirit of the one true God who indwells you. And you don't have to go out and get hammered drunk and act like an immoral knucklehead for that to happen. You, you just need Jesus. He's the one who truly saves. He's the one who rescues. So that's the connection to whom Paul was writing, to the, with those to whom he was writing. But how did this idea of drunkenness connect to what he just wrote about being careful, cognitive, wise, and understanding? And to me, that's obvious. I mean, in Paul's day, what people knew empirically, you know, by way of observation, we now know, both empirically and by way of modern science, that alcohol affects your brain. And when overconsumed, it doesn't heighten cognitive, rational abilities, it lessens them. It diminishes brain function. Drunk, drunkenness doesn't clarify truth. It, 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 in reality, it obscures it, it clouds it, you see? Not only that, but alcohol depresses the, sever- the central nervous system, and as a result, it lowers our inhibition, and which is why, that explains why sometimes, when, oftentimes actually, when people just get you know, totally intoxicated, they become fearless. We used to refer to that as liquid courage or liquid muscle. Uh, and then they go out and they just do things that they would never normally do. They become really giddy and you know, exhibit this kind of euphoric happiness that's not necessarily there when they're sober and certainly doesn't last. Uh, So you guys are tracking so far with this? Let me put it another way. Drunkenness makes people temporarily fearless and joyful by depressing cognitive brain function, thus obscuring or clouding reality. But the Holy Spirit of God who fills and indwells us as Christians operates exactly the opposite of that. Unlike alcohol, the Spirit doesn't doesn't indwell us and make us courageous and joyful by obscuring truth or clouding reality, but by revealing it and clarifying it. In the Old Testament, there's a, there's a prophet of God named Elisha, and um, he had an interesting experience one day. He found himself in a city surrounded um, by this massive number of enemy troops. 
the troops were, these troops were hostile to Israel. They wanted Elisha dead because they knew that he was giving um, advice to the king of Israel. And so they wanted to get him. And they surround this city where they knew Elisha was. And he, odds were heavily stacked against him about, uh, for getting out of the situation. Yet he exhibited a level of kind of confidence and joy and courage that seemed way out of place. In fact, when they woke up in the morning and they had been surrounded, his assistant looked out and saw the enemy troops and the massive number of them. And he, sa- he says to Elisha, oh, no, my Lord, what are we going to do? What shall we do? And Elisha could have said, here, take this bottle of booze and suck it down because it'll blur reality. It'll help you face the, uh, you know, the coming onslaught. You know, I just took a couple hits in the back room and I'm good to go. He could have said that, right? But no, he doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, do not be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And his assistant was like, what are you talking about? And so Elisha prayed. And he said this. He said, he prayed this. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see all of reality. Not just the physical material world around, material world around us, but also the spiritual world, the spiritual realities around us. And the text says that then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So in response to the prophet's prayer, God graciously enabled the servant to see what was spiritually true, that God is real and that God was with them and God was protecting him and and God had a plan and had the power and resources to execute that plan and would rescue them. They weren't alone. Now, unfortunately, we're not told exactly what happened with that servant following, but my guess is he suddenly got a sense of peace and joy and confidence and fearlessness he didn't have two minutes earlier. And see, that's the the fullness of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and dwell us and give us joy and courage by obscuring reality or clouding reality, but by revealing it, clarifying it, opening our eyes to what is true all around us. Uh, Christian author, thinker, and former atheist C.S. Lewis was once asked, which world religion gives its followers the most happiness? And Lewis said this. He said, you know, I haven't always been a Christian, and I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. He said, but if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. And Lewis's point was this, if it's some kind of superficial, frothy, feel-good, situational happiness you're looking for in religion, Christianity won't give that to you. However, what it will give you, through the ongoing indwelling and fullness of the Holy Spirit, is a heightened cognitive, rational awareness, wisdom, and understanding of reality. The truth of who God is, of what he has lovingly and graciously done for you in Jesus, and what he's doing in the world, and what awaits you in heaven. All of which in turn enables you and me to have have this deep abiding sense of joy and true courage even in times of trouble, even when the days are evil. And make no mistake about it, when when Paul says uh, to Christians, be filled with the Spirit, he wasn't commanding them to go out and get something or someone they didn't already have. It's, it's the last in a series of commands. So when Paul says, be careful, he didn't necessarily mean that they weren't already being careful. For example, Thursday, we got the snow on Thursday, which is why I don't like snow. I had to go out and clean the driveway, and we're on a corner, so I got to do the, you know, the walkways. 
And um, so I'm out there doing it, and <clears throat> so I usually snowball, and then I shovel and clean it up. And uh, there was a neighbor uh, across the street says, you know, hey, no, looks good. Be careful. Keep shoveling that snow. Now, why would that person say that? Because I wasn't being careful? Was I wasn't out there swinging the shovel around my head, you know, threatening people. I was being careful, and I was shoveling the snow already. And the same is true with Paul, you see. When he says to Christians in Ephesus, be careful, he didn't mean that they weren't already being careful. When he said be wise, it didn't mean that they weren't being wise. When he said understand, it didn't mean that they didn't understand. These, are, these were commands of affirmation and encouragement. Likewise, when he says be filled with the Spirit, he didn't mean that they weren't. He was affirming that as Jesus followers, they were filled, and that filling would continue. It was an ongoing reality, which is exactly why then they would be, and they could be careful and wise and understanding. You see? Are you, you good with that? You understand that? But as I mentioned last week, Christianity is not just a, it's not just a cognitive, rational deal. It's also experiential. In other words, as the Holy Spirit indwells and reveals truth and reality to us, what we come to know in our heads impacts our hearts, which I think helps make sense of what Paul writes next. Keep in mind the worshipers of Dionysus filled themselves with wine. They got hammered drunk, singing crude, lewd songs to each other, shouting obscene things to each other, and then taking advantage of each other. And Paul says the filling, the, the filling of the Spirit of God produces very different things. And then he lists some of those things in verses 18 through 21. Now, in case you're unaware of this, the original Greek New Testament manuscripts don't have sentence or paragraph breaks. Translators provide them based on, you know, idea of interpretation, flow of thought, and grammatical structure. And I don't want to get overly technical here, but it's just important for you to know that in this particular case, Paul offers one long continuous thought linked together by a, a series of participles, or ing words, if you will. In essence, the text reads this way, that as followers of Jesus says, be filled with the Spirit, which results in speaking to one another in psalm, with psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit, singing and making music from your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's how the text reads. And so all these, these speaking, singing, making music, giving thanks, submitting, they're all linked together grammatically in a flow of thought. But what do they mean practically? Well, another way to think about it would be to say that the spirit's indwelling of every believer impacts our heads and hearts, our intellect, our emotions. Uh, and so the greater awareness of truth and reality that the spirit gives us, the more inspired we are to respond. To, 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 to worship. And look, I'm weird, so maybe this is just me, but it's, it seems easy to read verse 19 uh, with its, you know, psalms and hymns and singing and making music and imagine an episode of Glee on the Fox network where, you know, we're all skipping around and uh, breaking into show tunes every two minutes. But that's, I know that's me, I'm weird, but uh, that's not what Paul has in mind here. The imagery is of worship. And He's, he's, he's talking about how the indwelling spirit moves us to be together and to speak and share truth with one another and, you, and, and to use music as a way to express our emotions, to express uh, our hearts to God, or as he says, to the Lord. 
In fact, the Greek term that's used here for making music literally means to pluck an instrument. So pretty sure Paul had electric guitars in mind when he wrote this. He was a guy way ahead of his time. So, okay? You can mark that one down in your margins. I'm just kidding. Are you out there? You are. Are you tracking? Okay. So this, the idea of worship is here. And then, and then he goes on, he mentions the idea of giving thanks, which is simply about gratitude. You know, when the Spirit helps, uh, helps us more fully grasp and understand what God has done in Jesus, for us in Jesus, and that truth moves from our heads to our hearts, it can be overwhelming. And we just, we have this desire and need to express our thankfulness to God the Father in the name of the Son. And because we know that Jesus has secured our eternal rescue, that we did nothing to earn, and therefore nothing in this world can take it away, then we're able to give thanks when, does Paul say? Always. Always. Even in the midst of struggle, pain, and uncertainty. I like how Paul describes it in another letter that he wrote to the church. He he said this, he said, look, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in the Holy Spirit, we are dying, and yet we live on. We're beaten, and yet not killed. We're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We're poor, yet making many rich. We have nothing, and yet we possess everything. And when we understand that here, it moves to here. And so we can always be grateful and always be giving thanks to God. And then finally, in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is really, is really about humility, you know, and following Jesus' supreme example of it. Um, you know, as we put one another's needs and desires and preferences above our own, and we give and we serve and we experience life together with reciprocal attitudes and acts of submission. And hey, you, you know as well as I do that in business or in sports or in the military or anywhere you, you care to mention, as human beings, we're, we, are all, we are all way more attracted to those who are great yet humble than we are to those who are great and who know it and want everybody else to know it and want to be, want to be treated differently because of it. I mean, it's a simple psychological reality that, that humility is regarded by human beings, by us, as a beautiful and, and appealing thing. But Paul's point here isn't to advise us on how to go out and try and muster up some degree of humility so we can impress our family, our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues. What he is saying here is that when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we become increasingly humble as we understand Jesus and what he has done and follow his example. We become more and more willing to submit ourselves not only to God, but to each other. And that really is a beautiful and appealing thing. So here's what it all comes down to. You know, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, the, we consider ourselves Christians. When we, when we put our faith in, in Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just part of him, all of him. And this filling is, is an ongoing thing through which the Spirit brings us to a heightened cognitive awareness, wisdom, and understanding of life and spiritual reality. And the more we grasp the truth of God and what He has done, the more our hearts are just overwhelmed and we can't help but worship uh, Him with gratitude and humility. You know, it's interesting, when we think about this filling of the Spirit, rarely do we, we think of it in terms of Jesus, that He was filled with the Spirit. 
Uh, many of us might be familiar with his baptism and how we're told that the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, but uh, there is an instance in Scripture where Jesus one day was talking to his, uh, his followers about eternal life and, um, and about how they should be rejoicing because their names are written in heaven. And, and as he spoke to them about it, we're told that Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this is what you were pleased to do. Do you understand what Jesus was getting at? He was making the point to his, his followers that if we as flawed, broken, sinful, imperfect human beings find God and forgiveness and eternal life, it's not because we have attained it or have somehow worked our way to him, but that the Lord of heaven and earth was pleased to come and reveal himself to us. And not just to the well-educated and religiously accomplished, but to little children, i.e. to the simple, the helpless, the powerless, the weak, the poor, the average like me. In short, through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, Jesus just erupts with joy to the reality of salvation. And he says, I praise you, Father, because you are a God of grace. And so my prayer this morning is for the fullness of the Holy Spirit to again awaken us to the amazing truth and reality of God's grace and the eternal life that it brings and so move us to worship him together in gratitude and humility in the name of the Son, our Savior Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we, uh, we acknowledge your presence with us this morning. We know you are here, and you have promised your spirit would be with us as your people and live in us, both individually and corporately as your church. And so we acknowledge your spirit's presence. And we're thankful that you have sent the spirit to help us understand um, more and more about what is real and what is true in our world, not just the physical and material world we live in, but the spiritual world all around us, the truth of who you are, the truth of sin and brokenness, the truth of forgiveness and grace and love and uh, salvation, all these things. And, and Lord, we're grateful for that teaching. And as, as, our, as our understanding of it is heightened, as our brains, our heads kind of grab hold of what is true and it moves to our hearts, I pray that we would experience the freedom to express ourselves to you and to give you thanks in the good times and the bad and the ups and downs to give you thanks because we know greater things await us. And so, Lord, I pray for those maybe who are here this morning who have never come to that place in their life where they have acknowledged Jesus as Savior and said, I want to be a follower of his. And I believe he is the, he is the Savior who came for me to rescue me and give me life. I pray that they might do that this morning. This would be a moment of awakening for them. And in that, that commitment, that prayer of commitment, just saying yes to Jesus, your spirit would infuse in them this, this new sense of reality and uh, a sense of emotion to worship. And for those of us that call ourselves Christians who've already accepted Christ, I pray that you would awaken in us an even greater understanding of truth and reality. And so move us as well to worship with gratitude and deep humility. Awaken these things in us, I pray. 
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we?